you know, right now we are all living in very, we are living in a very interesting period of unwritten history. Mm. And I guess I, my question with that is, what would you tell the youth who are interested in history, who will be documenting this history? What would be a piece of advice you would give them? Hmm. That's that's a really good question. I have to think about that. Um, because there's so many things I could tell them, you know? Um, and yet there's so little I could tell them. I would tell them same thing I actually tell adults. <laughs> um, vet your sources. Find out from the subject what happened. Don't take anyone's word for anything. From a local community college campus, I'm Alfonso Neal, and this is the Indivisible Hour. A question that always seems to pop into my mind as the evening calm settles in is, where did I come from? I'm sure this is something we all wonder, but why? Well, because all human beings desire those feelings of belonging and connection. The relationships we form with family and friends often transcend time, and in our lifetime, Digging into our past informs how we imagine our future in the present. On this episode, we sit down with Oris Jenkins, a recording artist, performer, educator, and genealogy researcher from Hartford, Connecticut. Oris is the author of Chester's Children, a genealogy blog exploring his deep stateside roots as a descendant of enslaved Americans, and serves as the executive director of Musica Franklin, an after-school music program for youth in Franklin County, Massachusetts. And with that, let's get started. But I got here because I spent most of my adult life as a professional musician, um, a singer-songwriter that recorded four albums. Some of them charted at 12 on iTunes, and some of them were on in magazines across the country, and some of them have been playing all across the world, and some of them have a million streams on whatever. And, and, um, and that's a life that I kind of had to leave behind when the pandemic started. Um, because I couldn't really tour or go up and play. Everything was closed. So I spent a lot of time by myself studying the lives of enslaved Americans, um, which is what I mentioned that caused you to ask me to come on here. So um, I had already been studying genealogy since 2012, um, but during the pandemic, I really focused on that with so much time alone by myself. I live mm -hmm. alone. So I was like, well, I either talk to my walls or <laughs> try to find these stories. And so that's what I've been doing um, heavily over the past three years since the pandemic. And what got you started or what made you, what was the, the light bulb moment during the pandemic after getting tired of talking to the walls mm -hmm. that you decided to Focus on genealogy. My mother took a DNA test. She took a test from a website called AfricanAncestry.com that traces um, what they call your mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited only from your mother. So I have the exact same one that she has. She has the same one that her mother has and her mother and her mother going back hundreds of years. And so they can use that little piece of DNA to trace what tribe uh, has a similar piece of DNA in Africa. I mean, I wanted that because, um, you know, there's all these 
countries now in Africa, like Nigeria, and, and but they didn't really exist when my ancestors were in Africa. Um, so you wanted to know a, a tribe, and this is a company that specializes on that. So my mom took that test, and I said, well, wait, before you take that test, I need to know who that woman is that's that this information is going to be attributed to. Um, so I was going down through her mother's and her mother, whose name was Annie Mae, and then her mother, Chestiana, then her mother, Mary, and then her mother, um, Francis. Francis, I didn't know. Uh, Francis was what they call a brick wall in genealogy, where we kind of get to a wall where we can't go back any further. Hmm. And of course, Francis is the first enslaved person in this line of my family, or last, I should say, the last enslaved person. So once I found her name, um, I was able to find her mother's name. Her mother was also enslaved, of course, but her mother never made it to freedom. So it was very difficult to find her mother's name. And when I found it, it was in the will, the probate records of a white person that had enslaved my entire family on this branch. And, you know, he said, I leave my Negro man, Albert, and his wife, Harriet, to my son in his will. So that was first time and only time I've ever seen Harriet's name. And Harriet is the woman that my mom's DNA test goes back to. Um, so once I found that though, that took me to a, a different level of genealogy as black Americans doing genealogy. That's always our goal to get to who enslaved our ancestors so that we can get back and find more genealogy up, up, about that person, because when they were enslaved, they're not in the regular records that you look for to find people. They're not going to be in census records. They're not going to be in the newspapers, typically, um, unless they escaped. Then they'll, you'll see them in the newspaper. Um, but otherwise, you don't find them. Um, you know, they don't they're not allowed to get married legally. So even though he said Albert and his wife, Harriet, they weren't legally able to get married. Hmm. So you don't find these normal records um, that free people are allowed to to take part in. So you have to go through these enslavers and research these people um, that held my family as slaves. Um, so that's kind of the the holy grail, I guess you could say, of of genealogy for black Americans. And once I figured out how to do that, which was totally by chance that I found this will, by the way, it was, I wasn't looking for it in that exact moment, but I found it in the, in the moment that I needed to find it. Um, and then that caused me to go even deeper looking into Albert and Harriet, this couple. And I was able to find the records for um, lots of enslaved people, um, hundreds of them. And so I've been kind of catalog cataloging everything I've been finding, putting it together, publishing it on my website and a blog called Chester's Children, um, sharing it with the descendants, descendants of those people, um, locating the land where these people worked. It's been really important to me. In fact, the plantation that Albert and Harriet were on, Grimsley Mill Plantation, just sold for four million dollars a couple of years ago. Wow. So, you know, visiting that land and, and working on that has been really um important to me, and then also helping other people find their family story and where their family came from. Um, and it's been really, really rewarding to uncover all this information that, you know, had been lost, per se. 
So yeah, that's the uh, short version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. No, that is a lot, you know, and, you know, hearing everything, you know, the challenge of hitting, you said that wall mm -hmm. and then having to look to the slave owners, the land holders and mm -hmm. putting that together. What does that process look like when, you know, you have the two names in this will, mm -hmm. you know who the slave owner was. Mm -hmm. What happens after that? How do you begin to, where do you even start on piecing that history together? It's all the same principles that you start with, just harder. So you have to still do genealogy, which genealogy is as simple as, Alfonso, what's your name? Where were you born? When were you born? What's your father's name? What's your mother's name? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, just repeating that pattern and then you can even go to who were your friends, what church did you go to, or did you go to church at all, things like that. Um, so when we get to this, this level that you just talked about, enslaved people were inherited through families. So you have to do the genealogy of those enslavers and find out, okay, I found this white man, his name was Joseph Grimsley. Who was his father? who was his mother. That could be where Albert or Harriet came from. Find their probate records. You might see Albert and Harriet as little children or their parents in the, those probate records, which did not happen in this case. Mm -hmm. um, by the time Albert got to Joseph Grimsley's plantation, that was his fourth enslaver. So he had been sold multiple times. Um, but I ended up finding Albert where he was born through um, an enslaver named Thomas Terrell. And when I researched Thomas's wife's family, that's where I found my ancestors going back several more generations. So you have to do the genealogy of the white people too. And that's where you find more records going back for the black people that, that worked their land. And these are hundreds of enslaved black families that were under these sold many times. Oh yeah, sold and and sold apart from each other. You know, so when Albert was sold, his family wasn't sold. He was a teenager. He was, you know, one of the strong young men. Mm -hmm. So his mother and his father stayed behind, his siblings stayed behind and he was sold by himself. Um, not by himself, he was sold with 30 other people, but not necessarily people that were related to him. So it's kind of like they, they rip out certain certain people. And, and when you're going through all of the, all of these records, what, is there a distinct, almost geographic pattern as to where they start, where, where they, they're starting, where they're going, where they're sold? You know, what is that? What is that? How do, what kind of picture does that paint based on like the locations? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And and that's a, a good point that I didn't realize until I looked at how Albert was sold away um, because his so his parents that I was talking about where I went back into the white people's family and found their family. They came from Virginia. So Virginia, which can be seen as kind of like the, the beginning of this country in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. either Virginia or Massachusetts, depending on who you ask. Right. Um, when they came to Virginia, these folks didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and, 
And and you may have heard of the 1619 Project, which um, was a part yeah. of the New York Times, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, that's where the first documented group of enslaved people ended up um, in Jamestown, Virginia, 1619. So after that, and those enslaved Africans who actually weren't enslaved once they got here, they ended up saving the Jamestown colony, like, because they didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. They, they needed help from the, the natives that were there and from the enslaved Africans. Um, and they still didn't do it right. They depleted the soil. As these settlers, these European settlers kept coming into Virginia, they kept having to move further and further south because the, they couldn't use the soil anymore the way that they wanted to. They destroyed the soil. So they were coming down into South Carolina, into Georgia. And that's where um, my next generation was. That's where Albert Terrell was born. Then um, they're in North Georgia doing the same thing. So that's why the migration pattern is keep, it keeps going south um, towards Alabama now. And that's where uh, Albert lived most of his life um, on the border of Alabama and Georgia on the river, the Chattahoochee River, which is where the more fertile soil was. Um, but so it basically you follow things like the rivers where the soil was better at whatever time, um, certain crops you might follow, like cotton was their thing, but in Virginia, tobacco was more mm-hmm. so their thing or, or corn might've been the thing. Um, so it's, it's, it is, there is a pattern for sure for those migrations. And in those patterns, those migration patterns, did you ever see patterns that came up this way towards, you know, Western Massachusetts was, uh, you know, the, the uh, Connecticut River Valley, was there ever, was that something that happened later on? Was there any, you know, migration in that time period? I'm not sure necessarily. Um, a lot of the migrations that I've studied to this area were actually due to the Civil War. Um, so people escaping on the Underground Railroad to this area, um, but not necessarily because of the um, the Connecticut River or um, doing farming up here. Um, but that's, that's more so what I've seen. Um, and then now later on, um, when my family came up to Connecticut in 1916, um, they came up for like factory jobs and for um, like my great grandfather was a bottler for Coca-Cola when he came in 1916. So um, he actually did not use any riverways to get up here, but he used um, he came up the Atlantic coastline. He caught a boat in Savannah, Georgia, and it went all the way up to New York City. And then he caught a train to Connecticut. So that's how my folks got up here. <laughs> Yeah, he, he tricked whoever he was working for. He said, oh, we're just going to the beach for the day. <laughs> <laughs> and he, so he went to Savannah, caught the train to Savannah, and then he got on a boat. It's like, day off, I'll see you later. <laughs> and we're gone. Yeah, and then he had to send for his wife and, and kids later on because they couldn't all go together. His wife was pregnant, um, and she actually ended up giving birth the night that she got to Connecticut. Same on the ship, same, same ship. No, no. They took the train the whole way, the whole. And of course, the colored section of the train was right behind the engine. So I don't know if those fumes maybe like 
exacerbated her birth or something. I don't know what the right term is for that, but, um, you know, she, I don't know if she was full term, but as soon as she got off that train, she was having contractions and she went into labor in the street because, you know, taxis weren't picking up black people. So, and hospitals weren't accepting black people. So she had to give birth in the street, Chestnut Street, Hartford, Connecticut. Now, do you know if did was there did any med like was there a doctor present? Did mm-hmm. how did that? Yeah, there is a German Jewish immigrant doctor that lived on the same street, and he came to help my great grandmother, and he became the family doctor after that too. Yeah, Doctor Zeman, Bernhard Zeman was his name. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that he was there because. Uh, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for his help, I imagine. Um, but yeah. That's wild. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, and, and I can't help but, but, but think, you know, at that time, 1960, you know, uh, what is, uh, and I'm going to get the date wrong, but sorry, you know, the world was already involved in the First World, world War. War. Yeah. So there was already a lot of anti German sentiment going on, especially mm-hmm. on the East Coast, anywhere where there was a shipping line or a dock, anywhere where yeah. you know European mig- you know migrants were coming over. Right. You know, so it's again, I'm always fascinated by how you know it is. It is the most vulnerable members of community that really look out for each other in exactly the most dire moments of need. Right. And and anti-Jewish, too, and that, you know, so he was Jewish and German. Um, You know, it was was very, um, I think that had a lot to do with my connection with the Zeman family. Um, Because like I said, they became the family family doctor, Dr. Bernhard Zeman, he became the family doctor. And I I can't imagine, I don't know where else they could have gone for a doctor at that time. And they were new. I mean, they just got there from Georgia. You know, um, my great grandmother, Tabitha, she was educated, but her husband was not. Mm. He he was a farmer. That's all he knew was farming. He had 20 siblings. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All from the same two parents. <laughs> and that's they grew up farming. Um, so I don't know what other resources he would have had to, um, you know, to help his wife at that time. But. Yeah, Dr. Zeman, he's a, he's a big deal in my family. <laughs> and for good reason, too. Yes. Uh, are you still in contact with the family? Is the family still local? I have no idea. Well, I don't, I don't think so. I did do his genealogy one day because I was actually, the building that I worked in for 12 years is, is actually um, Connecticut's oldest synagogue. Um, and it's currently a, an arts um, program, um, after school program, similar to the one that I that I run here in Massachusetts. But it's in Hartford, Connecticut, and it's in this beautiful old building built in 1876. On the walls, they have interviews that they did with the Jewish community. Um, they did these interviews in the 90s, and these people are were in their 90s when they were being interviewed. <laughs> And I saw one of them on the wall, his last name was Zeman. And I was like, huh. (laughs) 
And I walked past him several times. I'd been in this building for years and had never noticed. And I was like, Zeman, that's the same last name. And sure enough, I look it up. It's the guy's son. It's Dr. Bernhard Zeman's son. It's on the wall of the building I've been working in for 12 years. <laughs> Um, on another wall in the same building is my Uncle Emery, who was the son of the woman that was giving birth in the street that day. Not that son that was born that night, but her youngest son. He's, he's still alive. He's 91. He's a jazz pianist. And he was on a wall in the same building. So, and he's the one that, of course, knew Dr. Zeman because that was his doctor as a child. Um, but anyway, I saw that photo. And I said, OK, I have to look up. And I, I think they all left the, the area, but, um, but I'm, I'm now I'm going to revisit that since you asked me that question, because I would like to connect with them. Dr. Zeman ended up starting um, Mount Sinai Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut, um, also a place that I frequented because my mother has multiple sclerosis, and that's where um, the Multiple Sclerosis Institute is that, that she went to, the Mandel Center. So... Um, just all the connections, are, it's it's pretty wild when you start thinking about it. Um, but I, I have not personally spoken to any of the Zeman family. Hopefully one day in the future. That would be fantastic. That would be an amazing conversation right there. I know. And, and, and you know, and I always, I'm, I'm also always amazed by how big of a world we live in. Mm-hmm. But yet in reality, it's, it's, it's very small. You can find the connections there really anywhere you look, you'll eventually start making some connections. That is so true. I didn't know that until I started doing genealogy, um, you know, when I started in 2012. Um, Because I'm like, oh my goodness, especially because I was still living in Hartford at the time and performing and, and, you know, people kind of knew me. And people would always come to me and say, hey, cousin. I'm like, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I wouldn't know who these people are. Then I'd go to a family funeral and see, see an obituary and, and see all these names that I recognize in the obituary. And I'm like, oh, I've always known this person and that person and this person, but didn't know that we were related. Hmm. And one time I did a television show. In the midst of the interview with the television show, I realized I was related to the host and the producer of the show. You're kidding. <laughs> like during the interview, I was talking about one of my family members and they go, that's my cousin too. And then after the, the producer who was in the back was like, you know, that's my cousin too. <laughs> So, you know, it's pretty cool to me. I, I love that because um, I, I really um, I've been able to connect with people, um, you know, personally more, you know, like I can understand people a little bit better or um, be less angry and hateful towards people. You know, sometimes it's nature to feel angry towards a certain group of people that's been oppressive or that's been just generally rude or just, you know, that you don't understand. Um, You know, it can be frustrating at times. Um, But when you understand a little bit more about these people's story and and what they believe and what their families might have taught them and things like that, um, it kind of helps me connect. I think it's made me a better educator as well because I can actually connect to what people are really, you know, going through. Everyone's going through something. So I think that's that's been important. So going back to something you mentioned earlier as part of your work in genealogies, not only tracing your own family's genealogy, but also 
other families mm -hmm. and kind of sort of researching and trying to make contact with them. Um, how has that experience been like with interacting with other folks who may be in the area or are, I'm not sure if this happened, but you know, are states away who you have found some information that you feel is important to share with them or somehow you made that connection? How, what does that look like? How has that been? I love that. It's, it's some of my favorite feelings in the world are getting to tell somebody something special about their family. Um, I think at the top of that rewarded, <laughs> rewarding list is um, helping adoptees. Um, I've had, I've helped, uh, I've helped like five different people figure out who their parents are. Um, so that, you know, which I couldn't even imagine like, oh, not knowing, <laughs> you know, anything about where you come from, how you were born. Um, so that's been really helpful. Um, helpful to me. I mean, I'm obviously I'm helping them as well, but it's again opened up my mind to to other other walks of life. Um, but even finding out that someone is related to somebody famous, people like that a lot, <laughs> um, or finding out somebody's birthday, which you would think that everyone should know, but not everyone knows their birthday. Not everyone knows where they were born. So when I'm dealing with people that were born in different countries or, you know, like one of my friends, her, her mother died. She was like 91. Um, actually, she was born in Puerto Rico, which is a part of our country. Um, but for some reason, there was no birth certificate and they needed help to figure out when exactly she was born to put that on the headstone. Um, so that was really rewarding for me to help them figure that out. Um, even like uh, doing uh, research in Jamaica is awesome because their records are way better <laughs> than American <laughs> records. <laughs> so I have a lot more fun because I can go back further. I have a lot more fun with anybody, fam anybody that's not my family because, because my family is stuck in this one little corner of Georgia. Mm-hmm. I, there's not a lot of freedom stories. There's not a lot of, you know, everybody was a farm laborer and that is it, um, which is fine. And they were great at that. And I wouldn't be here if they weren't doing that. But, um, you know, when you research other people's families, you get people that escaped to the north or people that were free always. I discovered a whole part of a family in Goochland County, Virginia, that was free always just free black people going back to the 1700s and their ancestors fought on the Revolutionary War. And I got to tell somebody that um, and he had no idea. And the guy had the same last name as him. His ancestor fought in the Revolutionary War. He had no idea. And then he descended from totally free family. They were free landowners, black people in Virginia. Um, so similar to that, when I was doing Jamaican records, um, because slavery ended there much earlier than in America um, because of uh, Great Britain. So free black people, I've found records going back to the 1840s of free black people in Jamaica, which to me is just awesome. Um, and it doesn't really happen so often in America, but it does happen. I've researched a lot of wonderful free black families in Connecticut um, and in Massachusetts. Um, I even found, I have a case I was working on where the woman lived in Montague, Massachusetts. This is years ago. I did not know that I would one day be working in Montague, Massachusetts. 
um, because that is the next town from where we are sitting right now. And I was like, wow. Um, and she's someone that escaped um, during slavery from Virginia to Montague, Massachusetts. So it's that's been really exciting. And again, that's for someone else's family. So getting to tell somebody that um, it's just it's really fun to me. It's like um, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Finding Your Roots. Um, it's on PBS. I think it's on Tuesdays. Um, this professor of history from Harvard, his name is um, Henry Louis Gates. He typically does celebrities every week, two or three celebrities. You know what I have seen? I haven't seen full episodes, but I've definitely seen the clips on YouTube. Right, right. They, they do post clips on YouTube as well. Um, so he's done everybody from Oprah to, you know, who else? Just anybody you could think of. And um, so... The, the entire episode is him telling people about their family, people he's not related to. Um, and they're often from all walks of lives. They're, there's, you know, all kinds of people. And you could see the joy in his face when he's, you know, telling people, this is what happened to your ancestors. This is, this is your people. You know, it's, it's something um, I just I love doing that. He does it a lot better than I do. But <laughs> but what's different, though, is that I do the actual research. Oh. You know, Dr. Gates, he has researchers um, you know, that he works with. Um, but I think it's really special when you're the one doing the actual research um, because there's certain things that you can get really into the nitty gritty. Sometimes these sessions can go on for hours where I'm telling you everything about your family. And you might have Civil War veterans in your family or, you know, you might have uh, people that escaped um, the pogroms in, in Eastern Europe. Um, I've had to tell somebody that, that your grandfather was four years old and watched his parents get murdered in the pogroms just for being Jewish and had to escape to America at four years old. I mean, I've seen some incredible stories. In fact, I would say every single family has an incredible story. No one thinks they do, but every family has an incredible story of what these people have been through. You know, and speaking about families and, 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 and learning these stories and getting a better understanding, you know, something you said really stuck out to me was how in in your work and your research and doing this and, and sharing all this information, it's given you a whole new different perspective on people, on society, on how we interact with each other. And I think you said, you know, it, it made you understand why people get so mad or why there is so much anger and, and, and hatred and division. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you feel this type of genealogy, this type of historical research, you know, which is rooted in oral history, in music, in stories, in, in just information that you kind of sort of find, like you said, on a probate document. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that, oh, let me rephrase that question. I don't want to phrase that because I've got the question right where I'm getting to the point. But um, in a world right now that is so divided, mm -hmm. no one can agree on anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even putting any titles or isms or anything, but it just seems like no one can agree on anything today. Yeah. Do you feel that 
genealogy, this type of work, this type of history would be helpful in changing how we see each other? Somewhat. Um, my goal and my wish and my desire is to say yes, completely. But one thing that I've learned is that there are people that have already made up their minds about being miseducated. And it doesn't matter how many times you show them the document or whatever. And that's on both sides, all sides, whatever sides you want to think of. This is true for a lot of people that um, they won't look. They've already made up their mind in their heads about how they want to see the world. So in that particular circumstance, um, I don't have a lot of hope. <laughs> um, you know, I have people that will argue that black people were never enslaved in America. I have people that will argue that Native Americans don't exist. They're all black people. <laughs> I'll have people that will argue that the Irish were the first slaves in America. And I'm like, huh. I mean, and listen, I'll go for anything, okay? Show me the document where you will see an Irish person enslaved. And fine. But that that it never gets to that level with people that continuously repeat those untruths. Um, so it's tough. Now, the people that are interested in genealogy already or interested in history already or interested in learning, <laughs> which is something that I think everybody should be interested in learning. But again, some people are already set on what they want to know and that's it. But people that are interested in learning, genealogy helps a whole lot with understanding um, especially, you know, in America, which is what I focus on mainly, um, the history of, of this country. So, um, yeah, I've seen it help a lot, especially with people that, um, the other thing that happened in 2020 was George Floyd was murdered by a police officer on video. So in the midst of all of those protests that were, some of them were, you know, horrific and and I was in my mother was in them I mean we were really like like it was a time where um America was on fire and in the middle of a pandemic so there was a lot happening at once that was the most the most um the most amount of questions I ever got about genealogy I got during that time period from white people saying is this racist? Do you think I descend from slave owners? Do you think this? Do you think that? And people that I didn't ever expect to listen to me about anything, they did. Um, and so these are people that really wanted to learn because I guess they didn't realize it <laughs> with, uh, you know, Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice or you know, I could keep listing all of the black people that were killed, um, many of them on camera um, for pretty much no reason, as if there's a reason to kill somebody extrajudiciously. There isn't. Right. Um, so 
you know, that's that's lynching. That's what we're not supposed to be doing anymore. <laughs> um, or never we never were supposed to have done it. But um but for some reason George Floyd was the one that everybody like I had white people were just blowing up my phone, just saying, Oh my god, I can't believe this is happening and I'm sitting there like I mean, this happened last month, it happened the month before that, it has been happening every month. I I don't know what made it different. Maybe that we were in the pandemic, so people weren't focused on anything else. Everybody was sitting at home. And so they all saw it happen at once. But I saw that actually make people start to ask questions and learn more about what black people have been saying and talking about since before 1865. Frederick Douglass, I mean, saying the same things that I'm saying now. Uh, And as soon as 1865 happened and 13th Amendment was passed. Um, my own ancestors were fighting for civil rights for black people in the 1860s. They immediately went to vote, registered to vote 1867. They immediately tried to get their own land. Some, some of my ancestors actually did get land under the Homestead Act of 1862 that Abraham Lincoln signed. Um, They built their own communities. They built their own churches, cemeteries, Masonic lodges, and other fraternal organizational um, lodges, their own stores. They were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing to become a, a community of, of survivors, which they were. And then in almost every instance, it was burned to the ground by the United States government or the municipal government, the county government, whoever, the sheriff, whoever. Um, it's happened over and over and over again, whether it's a police person shooting you or um, they dropped bombs on Tulsa's black neighborhood, the Greenwood district, bombs, airplanes, like, you know, the, this is, this was something that didn't just happen once. It happened so many times. Um, and I think that coincided that the hundredth anniversary of that coincided with George Floyd's death as well. Was, that was the same year. So all of that, happening at once really made people look and say, whoa, like this really happened. Like, yeah, we have the records. We have the newspaper articles. In Tulsa, there are people still alive that were victims of that. They're 105 years old or whatever it is, you know, like, um, and so I think that kind of made things click for people. Now, it only lasts about two and a half months. <laughs> so by now, they have forgotten again and things have returned to normal. But that's what was needed, I think, to one, get rid of Trump and, you know, elect whatever we have here with Joseph Biden, who's, you know, he's he's trying. He's he's there. But anyway, God bless him. And um you know, but I don't think that Biden would have been elected and I don't, I don't like to get political, but I don't think he would have been elected if all of that didn't happen. 
between the pandemic, George Floyd, the Tulsa anniversary, all those things happening kind of made people click for a second, quick second mm-hmm. to go, oh, maybe maybe we shouldn't treat black people like that. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't treat brown people like that. Maybe they shouldn't be stuck in cages. Maybe, you know, they should have access to health care or, you know, maybe they should have access to homes. Maybe, you know, just maybe. But alas, like I said, that lasted about two and a half months. Now here we are three years later. And um, sometimes I feel like things have regressed back to what they were like before the pandemic. Um, But like we were just saying, you know, you can see a protest like that and see a community come together upset for the same reason. Um, You know, I see a program like mine where I have kids from all over the place kids that are immigrants, kids that were born here, uh, kids that are white, black, Latino, Asian, that all come together and they play together and we sing songs from several different countries. These kids can sing in 25 different languages. Wow. And we bring it all together. Um, You know, social justice is for all of us. All right, hopping off my stop, my soapbox now. <laughs> no, I was. You had me sucked in. I was engrossed in that. I'm just rambling. Huh? <laughs> <clears throat> rambling is good. Rambling is good. No, you know, I, I keep going back to the the instantaneous nature of these moments of clarity. Mm. You know, and it, it, it makes me wonder, um, will, what, what will it take for that to be so impactful that it completely shifts our way of thinking about the world, of, about the history of this country? Mm. I think, one, it has to be in your face. Um, it also has to be consistent. So we're up against decades of the opposite narrative. Um, we're up against the daughters of the Confederacy writing all the history books that were dispersed across the country. I clearly didn't have a very accurate representation of, you know, we're also, we're working against time because I'm the first generation in my family that was born with civil rights. I'm the first, my mother was born before civil rights. (laughs) I am the first generation. And by the way, I'm an 11th generation American, at least. And that is a (laughs) significant chunk of time. I've been here for a long time. That's just as far as I can trace. I I believe there's probably two or three more generations that my family's been here, but yeah, I've gone back to 1732 in America. America didn't even exist then, by the way, but you know, in this land. Um, So it's only been a few years. People think, you know, and they always show these black and white photos of Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. just died, like a few years ago. (laughs) Like he, he was younger than my grandmother. 
my grandmother was one of my best friends. My grandmother passed away five years ago and I spent almost every day with her. We talked about everything and anything. And she was older than Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, he, he was born in 1929. So he would have been just now in his 90s if he had lived. He was like in his 30s when he died. Like he was really young and that's really recent. Again, like I said, it's in my mother's lifetime. So when you look into your textbooks and you see Ruby Bridges, you know, needing a police or es escort to go to school, that happened to my mother too. <laughs> my mother needed a police escort to go to school in Farmington, Connecticut. Um, you know, and my mom, well, yeah, she's, she's of um, a distinguished age, I'll say. But you can't really tell that by looking at her. You know, she's a very young, active person, very much into politics in her hometown or her town that she lives in, East Hartford, Connecticut. And, um, you know, when you, when I put it in that, um, you know, that kind of mindset that, OK, it's only been a few years that we've even had any bit of civil rights. We're just beginning this. And to think that people thought when Barack Obama was elected that racism was over. No, this is we're just getting to base level rights for black people in this country. It just happened in my mother's lifetime. So um, and as and as we see those rights getting threatened every day. Yes, it's not legal to do these things anymore, but they still happen every day. So it's going to take some time. We're coming up against hundreds of years of the opposite. Um, so it's going to take time. I wish it could happen immediately. But this is a whole country that was founded on those principles. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, Patrick Henry enslaved my family one of our founding fathers. James Madison, I, you know, George Washington, you know, there's lots of them, right? They were enslavers. Their wealth came from their property, which was human beings. That, doesn't, that just doesn't go away. <laughs> you can't just forget about it, especially when it's never been made right. Not that you could ever really repay us for all of that, but, um, you know, reparations is a very touchy subject. <laughs> a lot of people are dead set against it. Um, so all of that reckoning is going to happen first before any real change happens. Mm. Um, and so that's part of what genealogy is doing. But, you know, it's, it's only as effective as the people that want to listen to it. So, no, oh, absolutely. You know, and. You know, right now we are all living in very, we are living in a very interesting period of unwritten history. Mm. And I guess I, my question with that is, what would you tell the youth who are interested in history, who will be documenting this history? What would be a piece of advice you would give them? Hmm. That's that's a really good question I have to think about that. Um, 
because there's so many things I could tell them, you know, um, and yet there's so little I could tell them. I would tell them same thing I actually tell adults. <laughs> um, vet your sources. Find out from the subject what happened. Don't take anyone's word for anything. Don't take any one, one side of anything. Get as many perspectives as you can and try to actually understand why someone is saying what they're saying. Because you will get information that's not true. Um, you know, just try to really be in that moment and understand the information that you that you have to process, because even even if you are experiencing it, it can still play tricks on you. You know, you can experience something and, and it'd be totally different than what you thought you experienced. So I would say just always question everything, which a lot of young people are very good at doing already. <laughs> but question everything, write everything down and, and gather as much information as possible. Don't just stop with this person said that, so that's the truth. Get, get a few different people, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would say. <laughs> All right. Well, Oris, thank you so much for sitting down with me, and I am so looking forward to continuing this conversation, yeah. and hopefully we'll have many, many more conversations as we keep moving forward in our work. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Well, that does it for this episode. As always, thank you for listening in. And if you'd like to learn more about Oris's work, you can visit www.orisjenkins.com. And until next time, stay curious.